0: That's the New Testament. Uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, chapter four. You get into the heart of the defense of his ministry um, in this passage. Second uh, Corinthians chapter four, I would summarize as the philosophy of ministry, or the model of ministry, uh, a ministry worth emulating. And Paul's been under attack, Uh, there's those that are discrediting his calling, and uh, I won't read the whole chapter to you, um, but Paul begins with, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He understands that his calling and his confidence is in what God has given him, uh, not the response of people. Then he would go on to say in verse 7 But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who Live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And then, as he would conclude in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. He once again, it's almost as bookends here in the chapter. We do not lose heart. Why? Because there are many things that, and when it comes to the Christian ministry uh, that could cause us to lose heart, to cause us to be discouraged. Um, anytime, and we can see this as the testimony of church history, when there are great movements of God, there is also great opposition to those movements. You see, when... when The kingdom of of God or the kingdom of heaven is laying assault against the kingdom of this world. There will be pushback. There will be opposition. Verse 16 So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Here is a message for us. Here is something that we need to see. And as we will consider in church history here, how relevant this is even to the time period that we're considering. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to a holy calling as uh, Christians, as uh, the priesthood of all believers. We are called to be ministers. In our own spheres of influences, some of our circles are a little smaller than others, but that's okay. You will be faithful in the area that God has given you. And so I want to give you a word of encouragement even this morning. Do not lose heart. Because you might not be seeing fruit or it might, you might be discouraged even this morning as, you, as you've done all that you can to just put on your Sunday clothes and come to church. I'd want you to be encouraged. If you are facing difficulties or opposition it might be that you are at the center of God's will. And so for Paul, he would see that the opposition that he faced, whether it be uh, the gainsayers, those that would oppose him, seek to discredit him, he would say this is a light, momentary affliction. He would even say to the Corinthians, it is no small thing that you judge me. But what we face today is preparing us for the joy that we will receive in the life to come. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering for me causes me to long for heaven. I'm not sure how you respond to suffering, but look forward and look upward when trials and difficulties come your way, for we look to the things that are that we look not to the things that are seen, not to the tangible in front of us, but we have set our gaze upon what is eternal. For it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So, let's take this passage and bring it to bear on church history. We have gone through Luther's Reformation, the rise of Luther. We talked about the the issues that would build up to this uh, Protestant Reformation um, in, in the 16th century. Well, where there is a Reformation there will be a counter-Reformation. There will be a response to what is going on. I stand firmly in that the Reformation was a mighty miracle of God. The Protestant Reformation was one of the greatest phenomenons that has ever seen across the horizon of this earth. Well, Rome was not going to go out silently, on that. So, just to kind of review, uh, you, you, we have Luther's Reformation, the issues of sola fide, faith alone, justification by faith alone, righteousness imputed, Christ's righteousness credited to our account, not infused in us. Um, so, Luther has this Reformation which starts to spread throughout the continent of Europe. Uh, and then we briefly considered the radicals last week. What happens when Reformation goes too far? Um, and so you had the radical kingdom of Munster that was, that, that was brought up. Uh, the Anabaptist came from this. Uh, we realize, and we, hopefully we understand from church history, as, as Baptists, we do not come from Anabaptists. Um, as some might think, read history, and we will realize that's not the vein in which we have come from. Uh, We'll get there. We have to get into the 17th century before we start to see the start of uh, of Baptists uh, in England, uh, mostly in London in that area. But the Baptists don't exist right now. This is another thing where you might meet some people that can say they can trace the Baptist heritage all the way back to John the Baptist, Uh, Mostly those in that tradition are what you call landmark Baptists. Well, the thing is, the landmark Baptists didn't even come into existence until 1830s. So, um, needless to say, our tradition has not worked itself out in its understanding yet. We are still squarely within uh, Luther, Calvin, Knox, those kind of guys at the time. So... That being said, let's look up and consider Rome's response because where there is reformation, there will be a counter-reformation. Rome's response will is considered from the Council of Trent. This is a very uh, important uh, council. It is good for us as church historians to know our practical theology and know what is going on. This council, I'll give you just some of the um, Uh, uh, points here Uh, this extends almost 20 years through three popes there are 25 sessions and it is geared at okay Lutheranism the Lutherans are real they're not going anywhere this 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 revolt is gaining traction they're becoming more and more of these heretics that are, that are breaking away from the mother church. And so there are four, I want to give you a, just an br- uh, overview, but there are four major points I want us to understand and take away from Rome's response or the Council of Trent that was worked out over 20 years. Um, as they were called together and to, to, to deal with how do we deal with the Protestants? What is our response here? First one. The first major point that you can take away from the Council of Trent and Rome's response was they doubled down in the rejection of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura, we say, Scripture alone. Scripture is the final rule of authority. This is why when we stand in the pulpit the preacher puts a Bible between him and the people because it is the Bible, right? It is the word of God of supreme authority. That's why the pulpit is elevated, right? This is a practical theology. This is why we put the pulpit in the center so that we, the focal point in the Protestant church is the elevated pulpit, the preaching of the word. It is central to what we do. This is why we structure our worship services the way we do. Simply this, sing the word, preach the word, Pray the word, read the word, see the word in the ordinances. Everything is word-centered, scripture-saturated. And so, right here, Rome's response in the rejection of sola scriptura. This is the first decree that comes of session four. This was written on April 8th, 1546. Here it is from Trent. The council accepts and venerates all the books of both the Old and New Testament, along with the Apocrypha. It also accepts and venerates traditions concerned with faith and morals as has, as has having been received orally from Christ or inspired by the Holy Spirit and continuously preserved in the Catholic Church. What's being stated here? Apart from the addition of the Apocrypha, Scripture and so so it's not it's not that scripture isn't an authority. They're not saying that. They're just saying scripture isn't the only authority. There is scripture, and there is the traditions of the church. The apocrypha, uh, the apocrypha are, are the are the uh, intercanonical books where you would have like Maccabees, um, uh, uh, Shepherd of Hermes. I'm not sure if that's in there as well, but. They are they are they are not inspired. Well, we would say they're not inspired books, uh, but they're in their in the Catholic Bible. Yeah, it, it could see that way. I, I I could you know from just what I know and, what, and reading and, and my own um, practical understanding. Um, I think you. I think what you're saying is true, um, but the, this elevation of scripture and tradition. Well it's very hard to keep those level. It's very hard to keep those level. And so uh, even you might try to, uh, in practice, I'm not sure that it's actually doable, um, but that's a good point. And so really what comes from this rejection of sola scriptura as the, this being the Protestant doctrine, right? This is, this is where we stand, is really scripture and tradition opposed to scripture alone, it's problematic because how do you determine what is actually tradition? Where is the test? How do I determine? Because you say, well, it's always been this way. Well, who made it this way? What's the rule for the determination of what is actually tradition? You ever play the game of telephone? Telephone. Andrew whispers in Dana's ear. Dana whispers in Aaron's ear. And, and, and by the time we get to the end, is it the same thing? I don't know. But what we do have with the scriptures is we have a rule by which we can measure. That's what the canon really is, is a measuring rod. Yes. The confet- the, the, on this confession, this apostolic confession, that you are the christ i 'm building the church upon this, yes, yeah well, yeah I, I do want to be careful in in that you know uh, if and hopefully i didn 't sit through church history through the first thousand years or so uh, of church history that was that was presented, but um, the system. Gets corrupt as the time goes on, right? We could see really the, the turning point was the Fourth Lateran Council, twelve fifteen. From then up until for about three hundred years, it just it just continues to go down in, in its corruption. Not saying that it was pure or that it was necessarily right, and there were some misunderstandings, I think, along the way. Um, but some of the first popes, uh, Gregory and Boniface, those men were great missionaries, godly. Um, people to re- Don't be scared that oh, because he was a pope that I should just reject him wholesale. I think there's a sense there wh- where you know we can go with an almost an overly Protestant bias um, to the early church. Now, what we're dealing with here is absolutely correct. This is this is this is wrong. This is this is this is anti. Um, Scripture uh, at the at the best that we could say, or at the least, um, but yeah, there there is a fundamental misunderstanding here. Of but apostolic succession was not even considered until the fifth century. So so the, you know they, it was when they started they went they started working backwards from about four uh, four sixty or something when they when they really started to build up the the bishop of Rome. Uh, That was a fifth century thing that, you know, that necessarily wasn't accepted for the first few centuries of the church. Um, That being said, um, solo scripture and this, these, these are binding today. These have not been changed since. So the things that we're considering from Trent uh, are at least in practice. Um, We do, we do need to realize and understand that probably Uh, At least 50, more, maybe like 70% of those that actually attend the Roman Catholic Church aren't familiar with this stuff. Um, So uh, be mindful of that as well as we consider these things. Um, So it's new to a lot of them as well. Yes, Aaron. Sure. No, sure, sure, no, because that's where we can place value, and that's what we'll do and probably in two weeks because we're going to look at creeds and confessions, right, where the, these historical documents, not catechisms, these are valuable, like, you know— uh, things like Nica- Nicaea, Chalcedonia, then you know London Baptist, uh, which is just the better version of the Westminster, and so those kind of things we can look at those, but we also see that they are they are subservient, right? That they are they are um, helpers. So far as maybe a document would explain in a, in, a, in a better way, because we all we all do theology, we all do systematic theology, right? We all take a, we all take. Biblical truth, and we put it together, and we form a statement um, and so so far as these documents help to serve and build up the church and the, you know our understanding of scripture, um, but they're yeah so, so they 're not level or but I, yeah, I agree tradition is okay, tradition is a good thing. traditionalism is terrible. We do this just because we do this then if that 's your answer, just stop doing it. Um, if you don't have any rationale for why. So I think we can be careful with tradition and traditionalism. We can get stuck in our isms that we shouldn't be. Um, Binding the consciences of men. Sure. Um, There, now, there is a danger, uh, I think there is a danger among uh, the real staunchly reformed crowd where there is a high elevation of, of confessions, um, catechisms in that sense where there, there's almost an unhealthy exaltation. So we must understand when we talk about documents that are traditions of the church and help to maybe explain denominational distinctives and things like that, again, they, they are servants. They are servants to understanding the Scriptures and explaining the Scriptures. They are servants to the church. They are not binding in that way, but they, do, they are helpful. Um, that's, a good, that's a good word, too, absolutely. Fundamentally, tradition is not an authority in the sense where it is with Scripture. Um, but I will quote to you the Nicene Creed, you know, concerning, concerning Jesus, the God-man, and I will talk to you about that as though it is a rather authoritative document, not that it is inspired as in the scriptures, but it takes the inspired word and puts it together in such a way that this is a document that defines my dogma, my belief, my understanding of the, of the God-man, um, and it is helpful to reject creeds, confessions, catechisms, is to bury your head in the sand. It, 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 is to, it is to think that Christianity started in your lifetime, and it is foolishness. <laughs> so there, there's no sense. And then they're just like, well, I have no creed but, the, but Jesus. Well, that's your creed, you know, and you could do better than that. Um, so those are some, again, let's go on to their second issue here that came from, so scripture and tradition. And again, I'm not trying to be exhaustive, but I want to pique your interest Provide you some information, and if you want to dig deeper, that is a good thing. Um, very much so, but at, le- at the very least, I want you to be aware. So, the second rejection, sola scriptura first, go after the scripture second, sola fide faith alone. Here comes the first decree, January 13th, 1547. This one is, um I want to try to explain this correctly because uh, oftentimes when the Protestants and the, and the Roman Catholics, they can use the same terms, but they have different definitions. Uh, and that's what, when we talk about justification. So we'll be clear on this. But canon number nine, if anyone saith that by faith alone the impious or the uh, uh, unholy is justified, let him be anathema. I say this with conviction and I die on this hill. I say that the unholy is justified by faith alone in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what, does it, what do they mean by justification? Now, our understanding of justification is, is a forensic, what we call forensic justification, a declared righteous, where justification is not any, a process by any stretch of the imagination, but justification is God's declaration that you have been declared righteous in his son. This is a one-time thing. You can't become unjustified. This is why anyone that believes you can lose your salvation doesn't understand the gospel in that sense of justification. You cannot become unjustified. God declares you righteous. What they mean here is this infused righteousness, this parallel justification and sanctification. The response of Rome is the fear that uh, the word antinomianism, okay? This word antinomos means against law. And this is the reason why James writes his book. This is also a reason why the book of James is a very favorite for Roman Catholics. Um, James writes because there are those let's just think living the life of a Christian is like walking down this straight path here. To this side, there's what you would call legalism. I'm not calling you guys the legalists, but I'm just saying, so to this side, there's a ditch that you can fall into where you become very law-oriented, that I must do this in order to achieve any type of favor or that I need to add to the free gospel of grace, which is down the center. On the other side, there's a ditch we would call antinomianism, which is lawlessness. That is you people over here. And so this group says, all I have to do is just have faith and I can just live as I please. Oh, this is great. This is great freedom. Let me believe on Jesus and then go commit adultery and do whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. Understand here down the center that those who have been saved by Christ justified will die be sanctified, will grow in faith, will grow in holiness as God commands, as Leviticus 19. Because in justification, we understand that there's been a heart transplant, that the constituent nature of the person has been changed, that you are no longer that person that desires to do all those evil. And the challenge tends to become, oftentimes, is that we start swerving a little close to this ditch. Because it, this attacks our pride. You mean there's nothing that I can do? That it's all of grace? So I walk this way in obedience, not adding to the gospel, but in obedience because of what has been done for me. So the fear of Rome is that these Protestants in faith alone, they will not emphasize living with good works. Or they might overemphasize it. So they say, if he's saying he's justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. But we do say it is by faith alone. My good works will not add to my standing before God because even my righteous deeds, as Isaiah said, are filthy rags. And the only way my standing, my standing before God is either in my sin or in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, right? So in justification, you receive the full merits of Christ onto your behalf. That is important to understand here. Canon number 11. If anyone saith that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice or the righteousness of Christ or by the sole remission of sins, let him be anathema. Yes, Jane. Submission. uh, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. um, Yeah, that's submission, right? To Christ. So I, I would say that's, that's right there. I mean, uh, nobody can say jesus is Lord unless you know by the holy spirit uh so want to ask some more right right so uh, yeah so uh, I, I think I think the misunderstanding is that there 's salvation outside of lordship type of like there 's submission to christ um and that in that trans. but i think we think about, think about the, the, the young believer who, who just gets saved. I can think about even in my own life, I just get saved. I'm, I'm excited about obeying and following, but my sins, my external sins were many, you know, even there. And like that process, I'm so glad that, you know, I struggled. It wasn't that I, Jesus was, there wasn't Lord, you know, I, I don't make him Lord. Uh, you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says. So whether I r- recognize that or not, um, but I think progressively, you know, as we grow in our sanctification, uh, those external sins are are, are, are done away with. Uh, Romans chapter eight, verse 13, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So that's that ongoing sanctification. And so, um, but when, with lordship, To me, I just understand that to be the gospel. Go ahead. I, I, I I question, you know, um, well, in reality, I I ask, you know, were you ever, right? Um, You know, you see in John, first John chapter two, that uh, the false teachers, they went out from among us because they were never actually of us. And uh, Matthew 7, a tree is known by its fruit. A, a diseased tree does not bear good fruit, nor does a um, healthy tree bear bad fruit. Uh, and so, this is where I think we get back to those that are, I mean, those that have been declared righteous by God, those that have been regenerated, yeah, the prodigal will go away. I mean, I'm an example of that too. And so, but that doesn't mean that we don't know how they finish so let's be careful with that as well um and sometimes i mean there there are many people that make professions that are not sincere and the and the, the most important thing is not what we profess but it is who we possess and it is and and that you know you will know, again, I get back to you will know them by their fruits. We're kind of quick. We're saying, well, we can't see the heart and we shouldn't judge. Well, Jesus actually calls you to. He actually does in that sense where we're not judging whether or not somebody is, is saved, but you, 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 you will know them. You will be able to observe them, and not perfectly, but sincerely. You, you know, if I'm saying, like, like the doctrine of carnal Christianity, I don't know who made that up. But I don't, I, I don't, I've never, I can't read that. I've never seen that. Oh, they're just carnal. Because we're putting the stock in the profession, but not the evidence. And so I think we need to be mindful. We need to be careful. We need to be careful that just because somebody prays a prayer or says a thing, that we do not give them assurance of salvation um, just because they might have said this. Because who am I to assure you that you have definitely been born again? But the evidence of your life, look at your life, look back, do you desire God? Is there a continuing? And, and sometimes there are those that fall away and we say we just don't know where you're at right now, but we will pray all the more earnestly that if you are a child of God, that he will bring you back. And so I think that's maybe a hope that we would hold on to. Um, David, look at, look at David. David is a, a saved man. David commits murder, this is, a, this is a regenerate man. This is a man who, who knows God. He commits murder. He's blinded by, by sin. But when confronted with Nathan, he does what the Christian does. And so we don't know. We pray for our prodigals. We pray for those that might have made a profession and walked away. We pray that maybe even just the time that was spent that they heard the gospel would be seeds planted that would be watered and grown in another time. So we want to be sensitive, and we don't want to hurt and damage people um, with, with legalism. Yeah, yeah right. R- absolutely. And so uh, when we deal with, in situations of prodigals, those that have wandered, those that have made professions, um, I can say from my own life in Romans chapter 2, don't you know that it's the goodness and the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance? And it wasn't somebody bashing me over my sin and my waywardness, but it was unconditional love that broke my heart and uh, that you would love me even in my worst of states. Um, and so I think that's very powerful is that we, we show people uh, unconditional, uh, unmerited favor. Why? Because that's what we've received. Uh, yeah, because that's all we have to stand on. And so that's important. Thanks, Jane. That's a really good, that's a really good point. Um, let me quickly kind of move through some of these responses here. Again, sola fide um, and Canon Thirty Two. If anyone say that uh, good, the good works of one that is justified are in such a manner the gifts of God as that they are not also the good merits of him that is justified, let him be anathema. This is a nuance of words. This, but we, we would say that we have been saved and we have been enabled to live unto faith and good faith and good works. Right. Um, Second Corinthians, uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 10, that the good works that we are to walk in them, that we should walk in them, that God prepared for us beforehand. And so at the heart of this, we stand on faith alone. And there is nothing else that we don't add to that. It's not faith and works that will lead to our salvation, but simply faith alone. Now then that faith which is a gift in and of itself. There's submission. There's, there's a recognition of authority. When we talk about faith, there's always three elements of saving faith, right? There's knowledge, belief, and trust. You must know something. You're not going to believe what you don't know, but just to, what you know. So you, they must have some knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ, knowledge of sin, knowledge of repentance, something of that. So there is knowledge. There's belief. There's a recognition that these things are true. This is assent to to facts. And then there's trust. And that's the big ticket. That's the big understanding because there are so many people that assent to the facts. Yes, I've been taught since I was little that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Yes, I've been told this and it's become almost like second nature and understanding. But do we trust this? Is that making a difference in my life? Is my only hope in life and death Jesus Christ? His life for mine in the great exchange that occurred on the cross. Okay, I want to, I'm not even going to get much further. All right, uh, the third rejection, ordinances, the sacramentalism. First decree, many years later, 1551. This deals with the bread. And the wine, a change is brought about in the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood of Christ. This change, the Holy Catholic Church properly calls transubstantiation. Doubled down again. Tripled, quadrupled down at this point. Would not change this. Luther pushed against this. Calvin pushed against this. Zwingli pushed against this. He said, no, this isn't it. It's a misunderstanding of John 6. Again, again, Upheld at the Eucharist and the seven traditional sacraments. We understand them in the Baptist tradition as ordinances. And we, we understand there's two, right? What are, the, what are the two ordinances that we recognize? Baptism and, and communion are the Lord's Supper. Absolutely. All right, here's a good one. Trent is not evil entirely. And we're not trying to point that. They make a good one. They recognize there's a problem. Um, ecclesiastical reforms. There's sexual immorality among among the uh, the priests and, and the clergy. There's, we must do something. This is against the testimony of the of the of the word of God. So they forbade uh, sim- simony, which is the buying and pardons of church offices. Um, again, more education for the clergy. You could that is so important. I think it is so important that ministers be educated. Um, renewed devotional practices, but there was a fundamental outcome of Trent. And that was Christendom was divided. It, it was clear the line was drawn. There is, there is no uh, cooperation, which interestingly enough, uh, later on Calvin and, and, um, and some of the other guys, they ended up finding a compromise with some of the more moderate Catholics on certain issues, um, but that's another time. So what happens here, the outcome of Trent is there are square, the camps are, are, are squarely drawn. Lines are distinct. Protestant, Catholic. And uh, to this day, this is, this is what we see. Uh, Trent, and, and uh, they doubled down um, against uh, the Protestant movement that was occurring. Yes, Aaron. let 's talk about something good for the next fifteen minutes let 's talk about a controversial figure, uh, John Calvin. We are moving from the uh, and the guy the guy is like he owns the beard, and um, we're moving again, we want to focus again just this maybe this week or so on the rest of continental. Europe. And then I want to get to England and, and, and the British Isles in that area and see where the Reformation went up there. And then there's like, at this point, there's like so many splinters, like which direction do we go in? Do we follow, do we, do we maybe trace our history um, and come over with the Puritans and the pilgrims? And uh, I don't know, we'll figure it out. Um, But the, you cannot talk about the Protestant Reformation without doing due diligence to John Calvin. I would say that I believe, from what I've heard with, um, among many uh, Christians, he might be one of the most confused and misunderstood figures of the Reformation. Uh, John Calvin lives 55 years. Uh, I'll give you a few just um, facts about him. Born northeast of Paris. He's a Frenchman. Uh, Jean Calvin, I think what they would call him, um, but I don't know. He starts studying at the University of Paris. Unlike Luther, he is born to a family that has a great intellect. His dad is a very intelligent and well-to-do uh, person. He graduates at 20 years old. He gets his master's in theological studies. John Calvin is one of the most educated and um, uh, greatest brains that, that we will find throughout church history. Uh, his father's excommunicated. And so when his father gets excommunicated, it wasn't over Protestant issues. We're not entirely clear what led to John Calvin's dad being excommunicated. But this caused Calvin to kind of divert away from, he wanted to, uh, he wanted to become a priest. He wanted to go into the ministry. But in the excommunication of his father, he decides that he thinks it might be wise to go study law. So, hey, I'm just going to go get a law degree now. Uh, I'm not sure many people have that type of just intellect, but he does. In 1533, 1534, Calvin converts to Protestantism. This is very important uh, in understanding. So he was, he was well within the Catholic Church and his understanding, but as time went on, um, through influences in the university, Paris being one of them, um, Calvin, again, converts over. Let me ask you, what are some things that you might, um, that you have come to know or learn about uh, John Calvin in your life as a Christian or in study of history? Any, any interesting facts that you might have? Absolutely. Whoa! Yeah, whoa. Sure, sure, that's great. Here's, here's, here's a, a, a quick one with, with, with Calvinism. John Calvin did not invent Calvinism. There's, there's one that's quickly, uh, actually, Calvinism develops under his understudy, Theodore Beza. And what we, you all understand or maybe have heard about Calvinism comes from the Synod of Dort, which is years and years and years after Calvin. Now, Calvin does believe in predestination, as does almost every reputable theologian throughout history. But Calvin does not articulate tulip, as some of you might Come to understand. So, here's the first misnomer. Calvin doesn't invent Calvinism. Calvin is not alive when Calvinism, the word, is actually used. Calvin himself is such a humble man that he desires to be buried in an unmarked grave, never to be remembered. And so it is this day. Calvin, you cannot go to Calvin's grave. Because he did not want to be remembered. He did not want his grave to be a shrine or anywhere that people would go to. Uh, Calvin would turn over if he knew that there was a system named after him. And so that's one misunderstanding that often have is that Calvin is this guy that believes God condemns all these people to hell. Let's go through a few other things concerning his conversion. He didn't talk about it much, but you will get an excerpt in his preface to the commentary on the Psalms. He writes that in 1557, and you get just a little picture of what was going on in his life uh, in 1533 and 34 concerning his conversion. He says this, quote, what happened first was that by an unexpected conversion, God tamed and made teachable a mind too stubborn for its years. For I was obstinately addicted to the superstitions of the papacy and nothing less could draw me out of so deep a quagmire. And so this mere taste of true godliness that I received set me on fire. So Calvin is converted in 1533 or 1534 and he sets out to write his institutes. Calvin writes his institutes, he begins writing them in 35, they're first published in 1536. Here's a volume that's translated um, of his institutes. Uh, I have not read them all, but I have read a, a good portion of them. Yes, yeah, this this is all concise down into one volume, um, so it is, uh, you could see little font broken down into chapters. It is a book that is long, and a, a, it is a... How would I say this? As long as the church continues on until Christ's return, that book will continue to be in print and continue to be a servant um, of the church. So what does he do? He writes these institutes. Originally, um, they are, um, oh, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. But originally, they're six chapters. Uh, They're just six chapters. And he wants to give this, um, just an overview of the Christian faith. What is it? And so uh, this, is a, this is actually his life's work that he begins at his conversion. Now, mind you, when Calvin's converted, he doesn't have to start from ground zero. He's already got his master of theology. He's already gone through so much study. Um, and he understands the truth of justification by faith alone. Uh, Christ alone. And so Calvin begins writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Originally six six chapters. You can tell this is not six chapters. By the time it's completed at the end of his life, there's 80 chapters written there. Um, And then people tend to now write commentaries on his book so that you can read the Institutes devotionally. I would plug those as they are helpful because there's, again, there's so many misunderstandings about John Calvin, and did Calvin do everything right? No, neither did Luther. And there are there are there are issues, and there's a dark side. Not I to say a dark side, but there is there is a bad side to Calvin as well. But if we wait for the perfect person to read, you'll never get out of the Gospels. Well, actually, no perfect person has ever written anything. Now, we understand that the apostles is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we have the perfect word of God. But anything that's ever been written has been written by a sinner. And that's something to understand. Now, we're not saying anything concerning the word of God that is perfect, inspired, infallible, and errant um, because of the Holy Spirit that guided the men in their writing. But don't wait to just read the perfect people. Okay, so Calvin's life, very interesting. He is... Uh, there's the, there's something called the, um, did I have it on here? Maybe. So there's the called something called the affair of the placards, which uh, happens in Paris in 1536. And I had one of the placards I wanted to bring for you so you could read and look at. What happens is this, is there's this document that starts circular, circular circulating around um, Paris and some areas that was uh, condemning the mass, going against uh, the papacy, um, and it's, it's this kind of like micro-reformation uh, that's going on in France. Well, this causes some of the uh, Protestant-minded people to flee. They needed to go away, and it's believed that Calvin had some part in this. So the, the affair of the placards, it's an event that occurred in Paris in 1536, drives Calvin providentially to a place called Geneva. And he's trying to go to a place called Strasbourg, but on his way, he passes through Geneva in 1536. Well, um, he is convinced to stay. We need you in Geneva. The idea was we are seeking to reform Geneva. We want Geneva to become a Protestant city. So Calvin uh, is told that he must stay uh, or he will be in... um, Defiance towards God. It bound his conscience. He stays in Geneva. A reforming work occurs in Geneva, in Switzerland, and they decide um, to exile him in 1538. So he is kicked out of Geneva in 1538, and he goes to Strasbourg. Now, we talk about movements. What is one thing that sustains movements? people write. What does Calvin do from 1538 to 1541? He writes. But not only does he write, he teaches himself Hebrew. He thought it would be wise for him to become fluent in biblical Hebrew, in the Masorete text. And so Calvin, without a teacher, teaches himself the Hebrew language uh, or the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. He's already fluent in Greek at this time. So in 1541, the city comes back. The city council says, Calvin, we need you back. We need you back. And he says, I will never, ever go back. I will never go to that city that inflicts so much damage and pain upon me. And so then he is told again, that if you don't come back, you will be Against, you will be working against the will of God. And his conscience is bound once again. He returns to Geneva in 1541. And what is interesting, an interesting fact about Calvin, is that his first sermon back is the very next text that he left off on when he left in 1538. John Calvin was an expositor of the gospel and of, of the scriptures. John Calvin, uh, the preacher, it is hard to compare him. Uh, to anyone, in what he was able to do, in the mastery and the genius of his mind. Now, when Calvin returns, Geneva becomes fully Protestant, and they ex- and, and something called the ecclesiastical ordinances are adapted or adopted. Let me explain these to you. This becomes the law in Geneva. Now, we live in a day and age where there is a separation of church and state. Okay, that's not the case. And that's, that's only been a recent construct in human history. So, so we, we aren't the norm, so to speak. Uh, there has only been, again, in the last three, four hundred years. And you have Roger Williams to thank for that. Um, so in understanding in the 16th century, church and state were so much together. And the parties, the political parties of the day would be known as the Catholic party or the Protestant party. And so, uh, and that drove the thinking. So ecclesiastical ordinances are introduced and become the law in Geneva. This was this what what these did was they organized the church, they organized the offices of the church: pastor, elder, uh, teacher, and deacon. But also, uh, it formed what is called a consistory or an administrative body. And so, Geneva, um, you probably wouldn't have wanted to be a citizen there because in Geneva. Um, there, was a, there was a strong enforced morality, or maybe you did want to be a citizen there. Um, so this administrative body under the ecclesiastical ordinances, they enforced morality. Issues like failure to attend church, dancing, laughing during a sermon, gambling, or even public disrespect of Calvin would result in admonition and a reprimand. Now there were more severe offenses. The death penalty was reserved for heresy, blasphemy, and second offense, adultery. This is the law of the land in Geneva. Don't ask me to explain this, but I'll just throw it out there. Calvin was probably a post-millennialist. That being said, let's give you a little map here to see what is going on here in the world today. Here we go. Here is where Calvin is right now. You can see Calvinists, even though I would rather call that reformed um, because uh, this doesn't really become a term yet. But the the teachings of Calvin here and then France over here, kind of quasi-Calvinist, because Calvin led many missionary efforts over here. Um, so this gives you a landscape of what we're going on. We're talking about this area, but how it spreads. And you'll see how understanding Calvin helps to understand what's going to be going on up in here, uh, as well as just the landscape of, um, yeah, the, uh, the Europe during... Uh, the time of the Reformation. This is a 16th century, right around uh, what we're considering here. Okay, no questions. Um, if you want more information, you can take you can take my slides afterwards. Back to Calvin. I want to talk to you about Cal quickly. Oh yeah, I got to finish Calvin, uh, the pastor theologian. This is so important. Think Calvin. Everyone thinks oftentimes Calvin is some sort of tyrannical theologian, ivory tower. Calvin is a pastor's pastor. He's a pastor for the people. He, w- he was visiting um, a sick uh, uh, church member oh, one day. And, he, and we have this quote from him concerning what we are to do for our unconverted neighbors. It doesn't say ought, it should say ought. We ought to weep with those who weep. That is to say, if we are Christians, we ought to have such compassion and sorrow for our neighbors that we should willingly take part in their tears and thus comfort them. He was not a man who said these things and did not do them. He was a man who aligned his practice, his beliefs and his practice together. But let's talk a little bit about the expository genius. I believe that's Lawson's book on Calvin. He would preach up to six sermons a week. One of the other things about him is that he was willing to show theological flexibility in the name of unity, he comes together. Geneva and Zurich are united, and they establish the reform branch of Protestantism. This is He, does, he doesn't agree with Zwingli and, and Bullinger, which are a different view on the Lord's Supper, but he said, I'm not going to let that divide us. We might see things just slightly different, but we agree on so much. And so he was willing to be flexible, not compromise, but be flexible for the sake of something greater. This is, a, this is something we need. This is something that is so important to us. He was also a man who vehemently would strive to, to, to show and to preach that theology should never be divorced from one's heart. What you know about God is to drive your heart and flame your, your life and your practice. Calvin seeks morality in Geneva, not because he's trying to create some legalistic society, but because he sees this as this is what God has called us to. Did he do everything right? Absolutely not. Calvin was a consistent man. Calvin was a faithful man. And Calvin also, you you could read in his writings, believed that predestination, though it be true, is a doctrine that you must tread carefully with. And many people have done damage and disservice with this doctrine. He he, he said, this is a great and holy mystery. And careful to look too much into it, to say too little, or to say too much. Um, Would Calvin have agreed with Dort, sent out of Dort? Probably. But he probably would not have said that the soteriology or the doctrine of salvation that came out of Dort, Tulip, was orthodoxy and the only understanding of it. So, here's an int- a couple interesting facts concerning Calvin the Preacher. 200 years after uh, he had passed, um, people were recovering a lot of the manuscripts that were written. Um, concerning uh, the time of Calvin and his preaching because there, was, there would be five people that would be sitting in the front row while Calvin was preaching and they would all be writing down, seeking to write down verbatim what he was saying. And so then afterwards, did you get that? Did you get that? They'd come together and put together this this, this manuscript or this monologue of what Calvin said um, because when Calvin would walk into the pulpit, he would walk into the pulpit with just his Bible. There was no notes, uh, and so, their people are uh, historians and theologians are looking through all the notes, and they're they're, they're confused. There's what translation of the Bible was he using, and they couldn't figure it out for for 200 years. And finally, they come to the realization: Calvin did not use a translation of the Bible when he went into the pulpit. If he was preaching from the Old Testament, he would walk into the old he'd walk into the pulpit with his Hebrew Bible. And as he was preaching, he would be translating on the fly. And so if it was the Greek New Testament, or preaching from the New Testament, he'd go in there with his Greek, and he'd be translating as he was preaching to the people. Calvin used his own translation, and it was his expository genius. Calvin would, again, preach um, three times on Sunday, plus three times during the week. Um, He was a man who died young. Um, there's more to say about him, but we'll, we'll leave off at this part. I want you, and what I would like for us to have, is a healthy understanding of the, of the great men and women of church history. You, Calvin did not do everything right. Um, some of those laws, I believe, in Geneva were challenging and uh, um, would not be what we would see and do. Uh, but nonetheless, to throw him out because you would associate him with Calvinism, um, though he, you know, he's closely aligned with that, would be uh, a poor move, uh, to say the least. And so uh, I hope you're encouraged. Uh, we'll continue, we'll finish up on Calvin next week, and we will move up to um, uh, England and uh, the British and the English Reformation uh, for next week. We're over time, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great men and women that you have raised up throughout history uh, to help guide and be pillars of the truth in the times of uncertainty. Father, I pray that you would resolve our convictions as men and women of Christ and uh, what, where we stand and what we believe. Help us, Father, this day. And we pray that you would continue to prepare our hearts as we come to worship you now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.